Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Metsville and baseball fans everywhere. My name is Michael Collins, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you back to another edition of a Metsian podcast. We've been off the air for a little bit. Uh, nice to reconvene with friends. So let's get right into it and talk Mets baseball with my partners. Uh, first in, Sam Maxwell, the converted Mets fan. How are you, my friend? I, I understand you're feeling a little under the weather today. I am, you know, might be the weather, uh, might be the rain, who knows what it is, but I appreciate you you coming out of the bullpen. And as we were just saying, uh, I, I don't know if there's any way you could ever be Diaz on this show, but I'm sure you're not going to be, Mike. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll delve into him, but I also call you out. I, I saw that tweet earlier today. You went out and had some food at a particular location yesterday, and I think that might have gotten you sick. What say you? Well, I, I can't blame White Man a Diner that was at the uh, the World Fair in 1939 because uh, that was two days ago. Today was Yom Kippur. I was I was fasting today. <laughs> I and I have that. questions about that. <laughs> I have questions about that, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, let me bring in our other partner in uh, podcasting crime, Rich Sparago. Hello, my friend. Good evening, Michael. How are you tonight? Uh, another day in the city. You know, the weather is. Uh, starting to look a little like autumn, wouldn't you say? I would say, and uh, it feels like playoff baseball, and I'm sure something we're going to dive into soon is the fact that, unfortunately, the team that we root for is not participating. Yeah, and here we are. We're sitting here, and we're thinking to ourselves, I know we're thinking to ourselves, we could have competed with some of the teams. Uh, Lastly, our special guest of the evening uh, from faithandfearandflushing.com, author, bet fan extraordinaire, Mr. Greg Prince. Hello, my friend. Good evening, Mike and everybody. How are you, folks? We're doing well. So here's my question, and I'll, and I'll bounce this back to you, Greg and Sam. Uh, it is New Year. Uh, please, uh, just a few words uh, on the Jewish New Year, please, Greg. Uh, I will... <laughs> Join all our listeners uh, in wishing and hoping, and uh, if if that's what you like to do, praying uh, for a most peaceful new year, a most uh, prosperous new year. Uh, We can do this again on December 31st slash January 1st, of course. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, symbols of, uh, of the new year in uh, on the Jewish calendar is uh, apples and honey. I think of the apples. I think of of City Field and Shea Stadium and apples rising. I think of Pete Alonzo and good things. So you know, may, may the apple rise for all of us uh, in 5780 in 2020 in what's left of 2019, as long as we're still here. And uh, happy and healthy to everybody. Sam, your sentiments on the new year. Well, good Yom Tov, uh, and uh, you know it is Yom Kippur uh, specifically today, uh, which is the Day of Atonement for Jews. And um, 
you know, I think that if we're we are uh, tying it into to the Mets, uh, it would be a little difficult for them to reconvene at City Field with with an apple being literally dipped in honey. That would be quite the engineering feat of them. Uh, but uh, it, it, it is for a sweet and healthy new year, and I wish uh, nothing but that to uh, all of my my uh, Metsian podcast listeners. Is of course, uh, of course, specifically the Jews uh, as well. But uh, here's wishing for a happy, sweet, and healthy new year for uh, not only us but for the Mets as well. There you go. That being said, let's talk Mets baseball, gentlemen. I'll start us off this way. The Mets played exactly 23 meaningful games in September. Fred Wilpon gets his wish. Uh, ironically, the victory, a victory over the Miami Marlins is their last as the competition squeezes them out of postseason contention at the 158-game mark. Uh, they finish the regular season in third place, 11 games back of Atlanta and three games out of the wild card race. With an 86-76 and 76 record, uh, the Mets at least assure themselves of their first winning season in three years. How do you feel about what I just said, Rich? Well, th- that debate has raged on Twitter for a while, and I don't see how you – I think there are gradations, Mike. Like some people said, is it a success, yes or no? It, it's not really that. There are gradations. It's not a, the season's not a success, really, unless you go to the postseason. And one could argue it's not a success unless you're in the World Series. But you can have successful aspects of a season, and they did. You know, first of all, like you said, 86 and 76, first winning season in three years, that's progress, right? The emergence of Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, uh, you know, Michael Conforto, bit up and down, but in, in the end, still a good year. So some very good things happened. Um so I think it's really a function of where they go with it. You know, the season was okay. Uh, it certainly wasn't the greatest of successes. It certainly wasn't a failure. But the question is, do they build off of this? And if they do, then this season could be classified as, success, as a success. If they do not build off of this, if they regress next year, then one could say that any of the learnings, any of the positive things that happen – went for naught, and, and it would really, you know, drive down any anything you want to say was successful about 2019. So I guess my short answer is, while I think it's it was a good a step in the right direction, I think the, the jury is out, and let's see what they do with it. Greg, you heard the numbers. Uh, how do you feel about the season that was? You know, at at this stage of the calendar, some years you just want to forget the Met season that has passed. Sometimes it feels as if it never took place by now. Uh, you're deep into watching other teams in the postseason. You're hoping for the windshield to be cleaned and uh, get a, a bright new view for the year ahead. Um, I'm still feeling pretty good about the year we had. It, it feels, uh, with, with due respect to 1981, this feels like it was a split season in many ways. Uh, the first 91 games were a debacle for the most part. The 40 and 51 Mets who were out of it and giving up and disavowing all that come and get us nonsense and uh, ready to sell. And the 46 and 25 second season, in which the Mets 
emerged as this honest to goodness contender that unfortunately when you put the two seasons together it wasn't enough to get them into this tournament but it gave us a lot to ride to the end I mean, literally all the way to the end of the season past the meaningful game mark uh, that you alluded to and, and right to the very last swing and the very last trip around the bases by Dom Smith in game 162 and you know I, I guess from growing up in a period where I never expected the Mets to win a division every single year. And that was the only way you could get in. So, you know, you understood that one out of six teams from the National League East would go to October and the other five would go home. So, you know, I was used to, as Rich said, you know, gradations of success. Um, I can live knowing where they were and what they did to improve uh, with this as a successful 2019, um, you know, in one sense, and I know we'll get to it, you know, it it feels like we have already, you know, hopped forward into 2020, given that one particular character uh, has been dismissed from uh, from the Mets picture going forward. So it, it already feels like we're, we're on to the next phase. But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still in a good mood from the way 2019 played out in the portion where it played out well. I'd rather have had it start a little sooner and be a little more definitive, and you can always, except for two seasons in Mets history, find things uh, that you wish had gone better so you would have had a better conclusion. But uh, I, I'm just you know, delighted with the strides they made, that the strides that certain players made, that there is a core of both players and pitchers to feel that one can build upon and that we're not, you know, I don't feel like we're digging out from the rubble for a change. I feel like, you know, we've got something to, to grow on. And uh, for talking about New Year's, uh, you know, what does you say when you blow out the candle? You know, one to grow on. And I think that's what 2019 was. Greg, another quick question. Uh, outside of the win-loss record, how closely or not does this season compare with 1976? In 1976, they had an 86 record. But how would you compare the two seasons? I happen to there, think there, there's there, a, a similarity there. there. There were some interesting similarities from a trajectory standpoint. Because there, there were points of the 1976 season where the Mets just seemed to have run out of gas completely as an organization. I, I think it kind of foreshadowed what, what the rest of the 70s held in store. But they also you know, came on gangbusters in August and most of September. Uh, again, the difference was there was no wild card in 1976, and they were so far behind the Phillies that are, from a competitive standpoint, they were completely out of it. But they, you know, that that was a team that was sort of the, you know, the, the, the last remnants of those competitive teams of the 70s. Uh, you know, when, when people talk about the Mets and the 1970s, you know, that there is a tendency to think about 1977, 8, and 9, and the, and the, the dregs. But really, two-thirds of that decade, with the exception of 74, were, you know, good, solid teams, the kind of teams I grew up on and tempering my expectations because I knew we didn't win it every year like I was talking about. Um, 
but that was also a team that, and again, I don't know that I was sophisticated enough at the age of 13 to have, to have picked it apart at the time, but that, that was a team that you could kind of see was not built to, to last or certainly to improve upon. Uh, this team, I think, is in a much better place that the, the youthful core of this team has a lot more going for it. And, of course, this team got a lot closer uh, to going somewhere within the year in question than the 76 team did. 76 team had some very uh, very interesting sidebars uh, or highlights, whatever you want to call them. Jerry Kuzman winning 21 games and Dave Kingman hitting 37 home runs and almost leading the league in home runs. And you, you had, you know, a couple of great pitching seasons that went unrewarded in the one lost column from Seaver and Matt Black. And, you know, some, some, some nice games and highlights and streaks and things like that. Uh, and it added up to 86 wins. And you, and you also had them led by managers who I don't think were cut out for New York. Uh, one of whom wasn't <laughs> long for the job and one of whom was even less long for the job. <laughs> So it's it's interesting that they would they would land on the same record, uh, and then kind of evoke uh, you know some some thoughts that uh, you know they they shared the same fate. But I think this is a much better team. I, I think Joe Frazier has to be one of the least mentioned managers in, in Mets history. Sam, uh, we're just gauging our our level of happiness. You and I were at that last game, game one sixty two at City Field, Dominic with the walk-off home run. Uh, and, you know, as that was happening, the ball was sailing over the wall. I grabbed you by the arm. I was jumping up and down, and I was shaking you. And I haven't done that in a very long time. You know, so the season left us off on a very good, uh, positive, uh, you know, feel-good mood. Uh, so what's your level of happiness, Sam? Well, it's like 2014, except they left it with 86 wins, as opposed to what I believe was a 79-win team. Uh, 2014, I felt, well, this, this, you know, obviously Lucas Duda didn't walk off. He walked off the night before, uh, but he walked, he, he hit his 30th home run. I just remember there were a lot of good feelings uh, coming out of 2014. Um, and so it kind of, re- in some fashion, reminds me of that, except I think one of the beautiful things, if we're getting specifically into that game, Mike, was the fact that we were with a British person unfamiliar with baseball. And when it went into extra innings, like there was, there was just, you know, we just kept looking over at them and be like, yeah, we're not going anywhere yet. <laughs> it's going to keep on going until, until it ends. That's how it works. That's how it works. And no, we're not leaving before that. <laughs> so I was happy that Dominic Smith kind of, um, you know, it was it helped us send send us home before it became one of those two to one twenty inning losses. I forget. I, I totally forget what the score was even, but you know what I'm talking about. Twenty inning yeah. losses, where where where. Uh, um, geez, I'm trying to think of that pitcher, Sean Markham, <laughs> is pitching a nine inning shutout, except for the one run he gives up. <laughs> but anyway. Um, I, I, Greg put it perfectly with the whole tale of two seasons, you know, and I think that says it all in that after that first season, the 40-51 Mets 
I think the, the place that we were was that we knew this team was better than this. Um, and, and in the second half, we got that better team. Um, and, and I think the, the best way to segue, I, I think, out of this is the fact that all eyes are on Brody Van Wagenen now as to who he's going to hire as his first managerial search uh, for GM. And I think that what's interesting to me about where we are as a franchise and, and uh, what I wonder about going forward, how this is all going to work out, is that there are two things that I think Brody bucked the trend with as a GM. He was obviously we're going to be getting into what his grade was, if you will, uh, uh, quote unquote. Um, but there are two things that Brody did that I think wouldn't necessarily have happened before his tenure here. Number one, he brought up Pete Alonso from the get-go, and now we have one less year of him without a, a, an extension, and that's fine because he, he broke records, number one. And number two, he fired Mickey Calloway. And I think that other GMs, other times with the Wilfons in particular, uh, they, they would have sided with the fact that they would have given him basically his last chance to get paid, which was his last year on the contract. They would have been like, they would have pointed at the 86 wins and said, he got better. He's growing with the team. We're going to keep him around. And Brody remembered, not only remembered, I think, I think he'd probably almost made his decision uh if, if it was if anything but the World Series or maybe the playoffs happened, Mickey Callier wasn't going to be coming back here. And um, I always, I think I've mentioned this before, how it's kind of reminiscent of how Larry McPhail kept Burley Grimes around as manager, but then uh, gave him one year. They weren't all that good, and sided with Leo DeRocher to be his, who was his shortstop at the time, to be his manager going forward. Um, now Mickey gets to have his guy, and, and all eyes are on who he's going to pick, and there's a plethora of people we're going to talk about uh, tonight as well. But I think that, that is something that regardless of what we, we decide he deserves in terms of credit for this year, two things I think he did that don't necessarily happen under the Wilpons watch before that, and that is the Super 2 status and firing Mickey Callaway. All right, let, let's do this quickly then. Uh, let's talk about the 800-pound gorilla missing from the room, which is the New York Mets manager. We're in search of manager number 22 in our history. Uh, very quickly, Rich, reasons why Mickey Calloway got fired? He got fired because he's a bad in-game tactician. Um, he certainly didn't get fired because he couldn't maintain the clubhouse, because he did, did a great job of that kept these guys focused, motivated, playing hard, all those things. He got fired because tactically he had so many flaws, it got to a point where they could not look past it. And especially when you missed the postseason by three games, and you could probably point to five to seven games that tactically he perhaps could have cost them, it's hard to keep the guy. I mean, you just can't. And they, and they saw it. Mickey's a great guy, nice guy. I, I'm not happy that he had to be fired, but it was the right move. Uh, Cardinals Atlanta just went final. Cardinals win 13-1, and they're celebrating over by the mound as we speak. So there's one uh, entrant to the NLCS. 
So, Greg, uh, reasons you think Mickey Calloway got fired? Well, first off, I want to congratulate the St. Louis Cardinals uh, on beating the Atlanta Braves because it's always a pleasure to watch the Atlanta Braves be eliminated from the postseason. <laughs> uh, that's it. Uh, Mickey Calloway, as Rich said, uh, yeah, couldn't manage a baseball game, which is tough. It's not the, the sole occupation of a baseball manager, but it's a pretty important piece of the puzzle. Uh, you know, what Mickey did well was apparently, again, so it's one of those things I always feel like I'm a bit of a fraud because I'm not in inside the clubhouse and couldn't tell you whether, uh, Mickey Galloway was great with people or terrible with people, but by all indications, he was good at managing people. Uh, and certainly, if you want to draw a connection from who the manager was and the way that the team played, if you want to say they played hard for him or just played hard while he was there, that's, I think, to his credit. But we watched too many games with, too many head-scratching moments to name, and he wasn't good about managing expectations. That's what I think is the third leg of the stool, if you will, managing people, managing games, managing expectations. And by managing expectations, I think that's where, you know, outward communications and explaining himself and talking to the media uh, come in, which is part of the job in 2019, as it has been for many years, particularly in New York, where people are interested to hear why you took this guy out and brought that guy in and put on this play and so forth. And he really was incapable of making sense most of the time. And you would, I think, come away from his explanations more confused than you were when the question was asked. Um, you know, you you kind of want to say, hey, you know, what, what, what exactly do you measure a manager by if not by record? And if you cherry pick results for Mickey Calloway, you'd say, wow, you know, they got off to a strong start in 2018 and he came in, you know, as a, as a rookie manager and got them to respond immediately. They had a, a very strong September in 2018 and gave you maybe a, a flicker of hope. And look at how they, they finished this year, uh, you know, not in the playoffs, but, you know, the deal those last two months were pretty close to electric. Uh, but that's cherry picking. We, we saw how the, the rest of these years went. And even, even with a, an overall record that was slightly above 500, uh, you knew something was off. And you know that, more importantly, you, you know they can be better than this. And that Callaway wasn't really the guy to take them to the next level. So I, I think he is the the first manager to be let go off of a complete winning record season by the Mets. But you can see why. And, you know, maybe someday we will look back and say, you know what, they, this guy got them part of the way. Uh this just occurs to me. I hadn't thought about this at all, uh, if, if you don't mind my, my injecting another sport into this. But I, I just had this vision of uh, the football giants, 1981, uh, third year of Ray Perkins as head coach, made the playoffs for the first time, which was amazing because they hadn't made the playoffs since 1963. 
And, you know, it was an obvious step forward. They kind of took a step backward the next year. And uh, that was a strike year, nine games. I don't need to get into all of that. But the point is that Ray Perkins left to become the head coach of Alabama, which, you know, succeeding a legend in, in Paul Bear Bryant and his, his life's dream. And he was succeeded by the defensive coordinator, Bill Parcells, who we all remember uh, if we're football fans. And even if you're not, you've certainly heard of him as the guy who, who took the Giants to the promised land twice and became this, you know, <laughs> almost Bear Bryant-like figure in the NFL. And we don't think much about Ray Perkins, if you're a Giants fan. Uh, but he had something to do with, with putting them on that path to where they got to under Bill Parcells, even though it's Parcells who we all remember uh, as, you know, the ideal coach uh, for his time. So maybe, um, you know, if, if, if we're lucky, and I don't know that Mickey Calloway will necessarily care, <laughs> Mickey Calloway's, uh, you know, legacy is lucky, shall we say. Maybe we can look back on, on the great successes that the Mets had in the early 2020s, if, if you want to project and say, well, you know, where uh, we're things got going in that 2019 season, maybe. And, uh, you know, Callaway gave this player and that player a chance and did some things well. And you could see a team coming together. Uh, but, you know, that's for the future to decide. For right now, um Mickey, Mickey Calloway is the former manager of the New York Mets for a reason, and it's because he really couldn't manage baseball games very well. Ray Perkins, great analogy. Uh, you know, in hindsight, they went from disciplinarian to disciplinarian. It's rare that teams do that in any sport. Uh, so, Sam, uh, you know, obviously, even with Jim Riggleman by his side, uh, Mickey had a, a woeful uh, lack of National League sensibilities. Yeah, but, I mean, as much as we were happy that we got some experience next to him, you know, Jim Riddleman wasn't always going to make Met fans, you know, scream for the promised land after that. Uh, (laughs) So, um, yeah, I I mean, what else can be said than what has already been said about Mickey Calloway? Um, uh, You know, I was torn as to whether – you know, it just after after being so gung ho about getting Terry Collins out of here since 2013, you know, uh, for, uh, we we had always he had kind of been brought in as the transitional manager, um, so we knew what you know the deal was. Even though we were saying we could be done with this transition a little quicker if we had a better manager than than Terry Collins, um, you know, and. I think that there was a part of me that certainly just it, it gets it gets a little frustrated that with the Mets or just New York in general, we can never let somebody settle in. You know, Terry, uh, sorry, Tony Larusa had a few losing seasons while with the Cardinals, but he was never his head was never called for. It was just kind of like, all right, we're going to move past that and we're going to get back to the playoffs the next year, and that just was kind of how it went. Um, but I think, you know, like everybody said, there has been a glaring lack of understanding of, of, of in between the games. And if you can ask me point blank, why did, Matt, you know, Mickey Calloway get fired? I don't think it's I, – I think it is a little crazy to say that the Mets could have won 100 games this year. But when you really look at it, 
how many games they blew, how many games of those games that they blew that they lost in terms of specifically the blown saves. Uh, oh, well, is, I'm, I'm sorry to break in, but I'm prepared for that. We're going to definitely delve into that very specifically, so continue. Well, you know, and obviously there were a few, there were a couple teams this year, I think the most ever, that won 100 games. Not to say that the Mets could have necessarily been that, but with the amount of games we watched them blow, it isn't with out of the realm of possibility that had they saved, had they kept the kept it in the W corner for at least half of that, that could have possibly equated to 14 more wins, you guys. So um, it was, I mean, it's a ridiculously fun season. Obviously the first half was the, the majority of the reason why we didn't make the playoffs, but now it's time to take it to the next level. Uh, there's something here and, and it's, it's interesting to see who they're interviewing. Obviously, Girardi is the big name out there. But in terms of first manager candidates, Carlos Beltran is in the ring. Uh, it sounds like he's definitely going to get the interview. And um, I, 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 there's something. There's definitely a part of me that finds if there's any way Beltran could make it up to the Mets fan and, and, and both him and the Wilpons and the fans together could make amends to what really shouldn't be as contentious as it is just because of one pitch, uh, even though I can explain that, but that's, I'm not going to go on that digression as to why Carlos Beltran has reveled from that one pitch by Mets fans. Um, I, I think that, that it's an interesting redemption story, but it could make the legacy that much worse <laughs> at the same time. There's, there's just like only two different directions that could go. One of them could be a redemption story, how the, 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 you know, he's he's definitely going to go to the Hall of Fame as a Met now because they're buddy-buddy, uh, or it could just make everything that much worse. But we'll we'll get, we'll get delve in, uh, deeper into that in a, in a little bit. <laughs> well, we're going to do it right now. Rich, Greg, I, I'm going to format the following question uh, after I put this out there. Let's throw all the names out there so uh, we, we know what we have here. The, the, the question is, you know, let's put ourselves in Brody's shoes. What direction? Do we go? Either they go in-house, they go off-campus, or they go the free agent route. The free agent route, obviously, is Joe Girardi, Buck Showalter, and for whatever reason, people are, are including Dusty Baker into the conversation. If they go off-campus, you know, we're talking about the Clint hurdles in life, Bob Guerin, Mike Matheny, uh, I'm hearing, you know, uh, fresh faces like Joe McEwing, Sam, you mentioned Carlos Beltran. Uh, Off-campus would also include Joe Espada from the Astros. In-house, I think the obvious choice, the obvious candidate there is Luis Rojas. Uh, I will just say very matter-of-factly, I want the next manager to be Buck Showalter. If for no other reason, that decision cannot blow up in their face. It's a sound decision to make. Uh, and I would prefer him over Joe Girardi. We've seen him in action. We've seen him up close being here in the tri-state area. Uh, you know, and he has work with the Marlins as well. Uh, I will not hold that against him because he was dealing with Jeff Luria. And, you know, that involved a completely different podcast. So the names are out there. 
gentlemen, what route do we take? In-house, off-campus, free agents? Rich, start us off. Well, you know, Mike, I like the way you framed it out in terms of in-house, off-campus, free agent. But to me, they have to develop a profile of what will take this team, what will guide this team from 86 wins to enough wins to qualify for the postseason dance, right? And to me, you build the profile first. The profile to me is, well, let's not make the same mistake twice. So a good in-game tactician. Okay. You want somebody who can relate to the players because you don't want to take that element out. Mickey did that well. So a good in-game tactician who can relate. When I say relate to the players, I really do think it means the ability to relate to young men these days, young guys in their 20s and 30s. So who can do that? And then the next thing is who can handle New York? Who can handle the pressure who can handle the two-a-day conferences with, you know, media everywhere? So that's your profile. Who fits that profile? Well, do you have any in-house candidates? I don't think so. I don't think they have anyone who meets that profile. Um, Off-campus, well, sure. You, uh, Joe Madden might. He might meet that, that profile, but he might be otherwise occupied these days shortly. Um, Clint Hurdle, to me, doesn't have the New York, you know, big market thing going on. Hasn't won in New York, hasn't experienced New York. So I'm not sure off campus really, you know, in terms of guys who are recently let go, not sure about if there's anybody there. So to me, it becomes the free agent route because that's where you can find guys to fit your profile. The, the profile, I think, is met by Showalter. It's met by Girardi. Um, and so to me, that, that those are the guys. You know, the guys are – Showalter and Girardi. Dusty Baker has never—he's done some really good things in the regular season. Never won though. You know, he's never—he's never gone to the world. He's never won a World Series, to my knowledge, as as a manager. And he had the Cubs teams, he had the Reds teams. I just want to say he did go to the World Series. uh, He did, um, but lost in seven. A loss in seven. Right. Right. So he hasn't won. Right. Hasn't won in a big market, and he's been out of it for a while. So, So, coming around to answer your question. I think two people fit the profile. I think Buck Showalter does, um, and also, at least most of it, Buck Showalter does, and Girardi totally does. So to me, the choice is Joe Girardi for that reason. As far as I'm concerned, when I profile my manager, Joe Girardi checks all the boxes. Sure, Showalter I'd be okay with. Um, Not so okay with Dusty. I'd be okay with Joe Madden. But to me, when I look at this team and when I look at what I think it will take in the manager's office to make a difference, I've developed my profile, and and the guys that I'm seeing who meet it would be – my order of preference would be Girardi, Showalter, Madden, and I don't even want to go farther than that. But I think you have to go (laughs) off-campus to meet a profile. All right. So in-house, off-campus, free agents. Greg? I, I don't advocate this, but if the Mets decide on Luis Rojas, it would be hard to argue, and, and, you know, that's for you to dispute, because, you know, he's come up through the system, he's paid his dues, a la Davey Johnson. So take it away, Greg. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, you know, all, all of the characters who are out there as candidates have something appealing and something to give pause without going through, you know, every every name and 
saying, you know, what's what's good and what's not so good. Um, I, I guess the one thing I would like the Mets to do is undertake a rigorous search and not decide that they're suddenly blown away 45 minutes into the first interview, which I think was something, I don't know um, the exact clock on it, but I, I think they they talked to Callaway in 2017 when he was considered kind of a hot candidate and just, you know, not, not very deep into it said, you know, you're the man, you know, you're hired. And I, I'd like them to, to do their due diligence and you know, to take into consideration all of the factors, you know, being able to relate to today's players, especially this bunch, which, you know, is a very, very frisky bunch, but also a very hard playing bunch. So, you know, I, I'm kind of given pause by the idea of a lot of old school rules and disciplines and so forth. Although, you know, managers uh, and coaches have ways of evolving. We saw it, again, just to go back to my previous uh, example of the Giants, we saw Tom Coughlin over the years who was kind of a hard ass uh, who didn't seem like he could relate to today's player and ended up, you know, learning. And they learned from him and everything was great. Um, obviously, you, you want a competent strategist. You have to have somebody who can collaborate because that's how baseball works today. There there are no or very few field generals who are you know, ha- handed a blank lineup card and given total discretion. And you you wonder how the collaborative nature that a Bertie Van Wagenen with Jeff Wilpon's blessing and maybe collaborative is just a euphemism for you got to listen to what the boss has to say in, in uh, terms of uh, the, the COO sticking his two cents in. But, uh, you know, somebody who who is going to get along with everybody and you know that that's not a bad thing. You 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 want all the best heads in on uh, you know creating the best organization possible. I think that is sort of the bow ideal of of what we were looking at when Van Wagenen came in, and we kind of forgot about it because the first year was going so badly. But you know Van Wagenen's still here, and Jeff Wilpon is still here. So you're you're going to have to you know play nice with them and mean it. Uh, you know you you. I, I think it would be kind of a an advantage, quite frankly, to look at a guy like Rojas or a guy like Beltron, uh, a guy like Espada, who can perhaps relate to the Latin players uh, a little more in addition to relating to everybody. But I, I think that's something that's you know not, not, not to be taken lightly. I'm always amazed, quite frankly, when I, I watch, uh, you know, post-game interviews with, say, Ahmed Rosario or Edwin Diaz, hopefully when I'd like to think of Edwin Diaz, you know, nailing down a save and being interviewed. But you know, these, these guys have a lot on their plate in addition to just the game. That You know, they have to play a game in two languages. And uh, it, it might be nice to have somebody who, who understands, you know, what everybody is going through in the deepest sense possible. And I'm not saying that that is, you know, what you make your decision on, but I think it's something to think about. Uh, so I, I would I would take uh, the, those candidacies seriously. Um, I like the idea of a name brand manager. Quite frankly, we we went with the hot candidate, uh, the untested candidate last time, 
I mean, again, the the the, the danger here, m- much like well, you know, the last guy was too easy, so now we'll get a hard ass and vice versa. No, the the danger is saying, well, we had a first time manager, therefore we can never have a first time manager again. But that's not fair either. I mean, Davy Johnson was a first time manager uh, in 1984, although he had managed in the minor leagues. So there, there's a lot to to look into. There's you know track records are are, are not to be sneezed at either. Uh, when you when you look at a guy like Girardi, when you look at a guy like Showalter, I think Showalter is a very interesting candidate. Uh, from, from both a why you would want him and why you might resist him way, but the the guy has certainly had his successes. Everybody seems to love Dusty Baker until it's you know time to deal with the games themselves, and <laughs> that is that is a problem. Uh, but Dusty Baker has a dynamite personality. The players seem to love him. The media loves him. Obviously, he knows baseball. But then then you run into these these situations. That have backfired again and again, albeit at a at a high level. Uh, you know, not 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 for teams that are finishing in fifth place, but for teams that get to the postseason. So, uh, again, there's there's a lot of lot of candidates out there, and I know that you you can't wait forever. And certainly, we, meaning Mets fans, and also the people who cover the Mets and people who have to fill time on the radio. We'll get impatient if uh, you know somebody isn't named before, say, you know, the end of the World Series or right thereafter. But I, I hope they just give it a lot of thought and don't fall in love too soon with somebody who dazzles them on a Tuesday afternoon. And um, whoever it is, I, I I don't know. By the way, I, was was the name Joe McEwing mentioned at all? Because it um, is now. It is now. Because, you know, he interviewed last time. He's kind of a – I always find it odd when they refer to baseball lifers. I mean, it's, it's not – most of these guys are, aren't off doing, you know, pursuing wholly other professions and then suddenly decide, I'm going to be a baseball manager tomorrow. But, you know, Joe McEwing has been working at it a long time, is well-regarded. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, has the Mets ties, which is nice, although they're they're not recent and, you know, they're not a, a deal maker. So, um, you know, talk – Talk to everybody. I, I, what I, I was going to say before I just thought of McEwing was whoever it is, unless it's, it's some out of left field choice that I just can't fathom, uh, I'm going to feel good about it in you know late October, in November, maybe into December, because I want to you know feel good about it. <laughs> I want to say, wow, we have a new manager, and these are the the assets he brings, and he's going to say the right things most likely. If he doesn't say the right things, we're, we're, we're probably already five games out in the perception column. But he's going to say the right things. We're, we're all going to, you know, be happy when he puts on the uh, the jersey over his uh, his dress shirt and takes the pictures and uh, hopefully shows up before Jed Lowry do, did this year when he took the pictures in the dress shirt and the uniform. But um, you know, I, I hope I hope to be enthusiastic about it. I've been. I was enthusiastic about Callaway. I wasn't that enthusiastic about Collins, to be honest with you. Uh, but no, no need to go back over history because everything else is kind of ancient at that point. But um, still rush it. I guess that's my – I will just reiterate that one more time. But let's not have any of this he lit up the room type of jazz and say, oh, boy, you know, we, we just got to grab this guy before anybody else does. You know what? You're the New York Mets. You're the National League franchise in – 
the largest market in the country. You have a job worth having. Yeah, maybe if if somebody else has an offer on the table, you're going to have to act, but take your time, do it right. I'm the SOS band in in this uh, in this realm. If you remember uh, your your 1980 uh, top 40. Well, folks, when we <laughs> say lighting up the room, we we are referring to Art Howe. Uh, Sam and Al. we know and how <laughs> uh, Sam we know uh, Mickey wasn't Brody's guy uh, I I remember I I know I said a couple of podcasts ago playoffs or no playoffs he wasn't coming back uh, so I'll ask you this way outside of resume what is a Brody's guy so because Brody is the unmentioned variable here. So again, put on the shoes, Brody Van Maxwell. What what kind of guy <laughs> is tailored to to your sensibilities? Well, first of all, I I'm kind of um, at a loss in terms of um, who this this uh, sleeper candidate is, Jed Lowry. Um, is, is, you know, I've been hearing. I hadn't heard much about Jed Lowry until Greg just met him, mentioned him now. So I'm kind of curious as to uh, how he he rolls the the, the floor over uh, when he's um, when he's interviewed. But but Joe anyway, uh, my, Jed Lowry is my imaginary friend, Sam. <laughs> he doesn't really exist. <laughs> if yeah, if 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 such such a man exists, anyway. Uh, so, so obviously Joe Madden is mentioned, I think it sounds like it's more likely he's going to be, uh, on the West coast or you haven't really, since, since it's, it's all gone down, it's not like, obviously I think his, just the fact that he's out there is he's going to be mentioned for the Mets job, but, uh, nothing has said that they're going to interview him yet. I think Joe Madden, somebody like Joe Madden could be a disaster, uh, because his humor and kind of quirky style I could see coming off as condescending to the New York media and it could go south quickly. Does anybody else feel that? Uh, I, I'm kind of interested to go around uh, the room with that one. I'm with you, Rich. Over. I actually think, I actually think that if Madden style worked in Chicago, I know it's not quite the same thing, but I think it would work. I, I think, think about how intense those press conferences can be. If somebody can interject a little bit of humor um, and maybe do something quirky, I, I think that's not a bad thing. So, so I actually have to, you know, beg to beg to differ, Sam. I, I actually think the sense of humor could break the tension sometimes and get, speaking you know, breaking, get the focus on. Speaking of breaking the tension, I just wanted to throw it out there. Jack Peterson just hit a solo shot. I'm seeing that. <laughs> there might, it might not be. Uh, My ball might be. They're saying something weird happened. Anyway, that, that's oh. how I feel about Madden. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Madden goes over like a fart in a spacesuit here in New York City. Greg, what say you? <laughs> on uh, on Madden? Yeah. Ah, I, I'm not. I'm not seeing it. I mean, I just don't yeah, see it happening. I think he's 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 Anaheim bound to begin with, most likely. Yeah. And he, you know, I just had the sense. And listen, Joe Madden worked wonders in Tampa Bay. Won the elusive world championship in Chicago. He deserves all the praise in the world for that stuff. But I, I just envision in the Joe Madden biography of uh, whenever it's written, 
you know, it, it's like Leo DeRocher in Houston. They'll say, well, you know, he hung on too long or it was not a good fit for him or something. I, I don't see him necessarily clicking uh, with the likes of Jeff Wilpon. Uh, and I'd be shocked if the Mets wanted to, uh, to pay his freight, quite frankly. Yeah. So uh, anybody got any last words on the subject of managers? Around the room, Rich? No. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, about the subject of manager, I'm very curious on timing. My guess is that they'll make an announcement in that dark period right before the World Series starts. Um, I don't think they want to let it go too, too long. And also, I don't know, if it's going to be Girardi, I think doing it at that point when the Yankees, let's face it, they're going to the World Series. We all know they are. Um, Doing it at that point might be a way to grab some back pages. And whether or not we agree that's a wise thing to do, um, the Wolpons love the back pages. So it would be a way to say, okay, look, the World Series is starting on a, on a, on a, it starts on a Tuesday night now. So the World Series is starting on Tuesday. Maybe the, the CSs don't go seven. And uh, maybe on that Sunday or Monday, the Mets announced Girardi. I think it's a way to grab some headlines. So I just hope they do it expeditiously. I agree with Greg. They have to do it diligently. But, you know, it doesn't take that long. You, you can get these guys in for interviews, do a couple interviews each. And then beyond with it, and, let, and let's get the thing moving forward. That's my opinion. You know what, Rich? Sam, I'm going to go to you. But you know what, Rich? That's a great point because when the Red Sox asked the Astros for permission to speak with Alex Cora, they were still in the midst of the playoffs. So I think timing is definitely a, a matter to look into. So, Sam, what say you? Um, I think that it screams – for for uh, an experienced candidate, somebody who's done this before, Girardi, Showalter, uh, since we've put Madden aside on our conversation list. So if it's not, it has to be perfect. Like if 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 it's if it's either Beltron or Rojas or or some white horse candidate that we don't even know about yet, um, it's got to be perfect. It, it's just got to be the perfect match, like Davy Johnson was at the time. Uh, so that's my my take on it. And Greg, last word on managers. <clears throat> By the way, Jock Peterson's home run was a double, as it turns out. <laughs> it went through Sounds the like chain it. link portion of the fence. They reviewed it and uh, turned it around. But now, as we are speaking, it is two nothing anyway. Because Max yes, Muncy, I believe, Muncie. just hit a home run. <laughs> so there you go. Max representing. So for all uh, for all the Mets fans uh, listening who probably aren't rooting for the Nationals, it's a two nothing lead. Then uh, if you're rooting against the Dodgers, it's also a two nothing lead. Can uh, I just you know, can I just say can I just say though that I I think Steven Strasburg should be a Met, but continue. We'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, last, last, last word is, you know, I, I feel like uh, Bar- Barbara Walters, when I think she was interviewing uh, Jimmy Carter uh, on the eve of his presidency, uh, be, good, be good to us, be wise with us. Uh, I forget the exact phrase, but, you know, do this right. Do this right for a change. To, uh, get a good manager. <laughs> be wise. Be good. And, uh, you know, well, either way, we'll, we'll show up in February. Well, as soon as they hire manager number 23, interim or otherwise, we will gladly let you know. Uh, Greg, you brought up the Nationals, and Sam 
I know you're chomping at the bit about saves. So here we go. I got a I got a tidbit that encompasses both. The Washington Nationals only converted 58% of their saves throughout the regular season. They are the worst playoff entrant. Oakland was second worst with 59% conversion rate. Uh, this all has to do with blown saves. This all has to do with Edwin Diaz. And this all has to do what, you know, is habitually becoming the late spring swoon. Uh, you know, this year in May and June, the Mets went 23 and 33. They were 63 and 43 the rest of the season. Obviously, we can all do that math. Let's go back in history. 2015, May, June, 25 and 30, 65 and 42 rest of the season. That's a 607 winning percentage. We know what happened in 15. 16 was another playoff year. They go 26 and 30 in May and June. 61 and 45 rest of the season. 2017 wasn't so bad. They went 27 and 28 May June. Rest of the season 43-64. Not too good. Last season we know how disastrous that went. Last season May June 15 and 39, a 278 winning percentage. 62 and 46. Jesus the rest, 62 and 46 the rest of the season. This year, I'll repeat, 23 and 33, May, June, 63 and 43, the rest of the season. Now, not coincidentally, a great majority of the Mets' blown saves occur during these two months. So, that being said, let's talk about Edwin Diaz. He led the Mets in blown saves. And therefore, he receives a brunt of the criticism. Now, before I throw it to you guys, I want to preface things this way. Last season with the Mariners, Diaz posts a 1.96 ERA through 73.1 innings pitched. He converts a major league best 57 of 61 save opportunities for a 93% success rate with four blown saves. This year, he converts 26 of 33 save opportunities for a 79% success rate with seven blown saves. He yields a career-high 15 home runs. His ERA skyrockets up to 5.59 through 58 innings. Now, the Mets' bullpen inefficiencies were a collective effort. Edwin Diaz accounts for 26% of all Mets' blown saves. Seven for Diaz. 20 blown saves for everyone else. So that begs the question, who was responsible for blowing the other 74% of save opportunities? I have the answers, but I, I just want you guys to marinate with that for a second. Uh, I'm going to go through some playoff qualifiers. Excuse me for being so winded about this. 
but I want you to take this all in. The Braves, 66% conversion rate, 23 blown saves. Cardinals led the major leagues with a 71% conversion rate, 21 blown saves. Dodgers, 60% conversion rate, 29 blown saves. Nationals, 58% conversions, 29 blown saves. Brewers, who are now out, 64% conversions, 28 blown saves. Their closer, one of the best in the leagues, Josh Harder, is watching TV. The National League average was 61.4% conversions, 25 blown saves. The New York Mets, 38 of 65 for 58%, 27 blown saves. There are teams in the playoffs with more blown saves than us, but obviously if you don't, if you don't convert at least 60% of your saves, you're not getting in the playoffs. Very quickly, American League, Yankees, 63%, 28 blown saves. Astros, 70%, 20 blown saves. Twins, 69%, 22 blown saves. The A's, 59% again, 31 blown saves. And lastly, Tampa, 63% conversions, 27 blown saves. Gentlemen, the culprits. Drew Gagnon, or however the hell you pronounce that name, combined with Will Mafont, Brad Brack, and Tyler Bachelor, they combined for 0 for 6. Lugo, 6 for 11, 54% conversion rate, 5 blown saves. Gesellman, 20% conversion, 1 for 5. Familia, 0 for 4. Justin Wilson, one blown save and five opportunities. Thank goodness. Believe it or not, Paul Seawald was one for one. Again, I apologize for being so winded. All the information is out there. Greg, I will start with you. The spring swoon and this blown saves thing. And frankly, in a small measure, we might owe Edwin Diaz a measure of an apology because there's plenty of I'm things not, to go around. I'm not apologizing, Edwin Diaz. For <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of those blown saves numbers, which are you know legit, are also kind of indicative of saves getting away when they're not really save opportunities. When you know, when Drew Gagnon. Gagnon, whatever, uh, is brought in in the seventh inning to get a hold, and he can't. They call that a blown save. So, uh, and those are failures too. Let's let, let's not be hasty in in uh, dismissing them, but it's a it's a different measure of failure, uh, I think, than what Diaz did. And you know, I I tried not to get to the end of the season say, well, if it was only for this game and that game and the other game, we'd be in the playoffs. But you know, there, there's no denying that Edwin Diaz was brought in to be the elite closer that he was in Seattle. And, you know, it's if, if I can, can make my, my third foray into football tonight for some strange reason, you know, you, something about closing out a lead – 
a la kicking, you know, an extra point or at least a chip shot field goal. It's like this is what you have to do. You're not asking for, for nine innings or seven innings or whatever. You're asking for one clean inning for the most part, and you had a track record behind it, and you didn't deliver. I mean, again, those those other guys, I mean, Seth Lugo, whatever it was, you know, six out of 11, five out of 11, uh, you know, Seth Lugo, for the most part, wasn't asked to get saves. Uh, he was asked to, to keep games where they were, you know, until late in the season. And then it became Diaz who was supposed to go in there and finish the job. Uh, and a lot of those other guys. Uh, and again, you know, those were, those were not to be held in, you know, put on a pedestal either, mind you. But it's just a, a different part of, of the relief pitching failure. So if you want to say it's not all on Diaz, oh, absolutely. I mean, the entire bullpen through the year had its problems. I mean, Lugo did blow a few games. Wilson had a bad outing. Uh, you know, Gazelman, who probably wasn't healthy, uh, was a letdown. Familia was a huge letdown. I'd almost forgotten that he was here because, you know, he'd pretty much been relegated to non-leverage situations. But if Diaz is more or less the Diaz that – even the Diaz he was in April um, – before we got to May and June, uh, the the betonoir of, of our existence uh, the last half decade, uh, we're probably in a lot better shape. As as for May and June, I mean, I, I think there is. I, I don't know that there is a you know a, a pattern uh, that can be taken apart and figured out why this team decided uh, or couldn't help itself from going in the tank two years in a row, uh, especially uh, you know this team in uh, the, the Mickey Calloway teams in May and June, why a perfectly decent April in both cases. Uh, Cause I don't think they were doing that badly this April. Uh, and we, we know about the historic great start in April of 18. Uh, I don't know why the team runs out of gas early. Oh, wow. Great catch by the way, uh, out in left field uh, by Kike Hernandez. Um, anyway, um, you know, there's, I, I don't know why May and June have, have been the, uh, the death of this team for two years in a row, uh, or why, I mean, we, we remember 2015, which you cited as, you know, the, everybody was injured and nobody could hit for a couple of months. And there was a, uh, you know, a, a replica of that in 2016, come to think of it. And, you know, 2017, in May had a seven game losing streak that pretty much buried them. But, um, you know, my, uh, my, my, my great wisdom would be to be to play better. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if it's a matter of, uh, you know, coming around and, and bringing a stronger message from the next manager. If there is something within the training methods that says, okay, you know, they, they play hard and through spring training, they get off to a good start and, and then they kind of forget what they're doing. If there's something that needs to be, you know, apportioned differently, it's, it's kind of weird that uh, not, not that you've brought it up, that it happens every year practically, but um, it's something to think about. I don't really have a good answer. And, and Sam, can I just jump in there? Can I, can I just jump in there and say that there's, 
there's a level unmeasured here as to how the Mets could have stayed in more games, you know, uh, and and who's to say that if they keep it a little closer, numbers that we really can't actually measure here, um, if, if they if they keep it a little closer with some of these players, I'm sorry, with some of these these uh, uh, bullpen players that are that are coming in with the game four to two or two to one, and it ends up being eight to one or twelve to one or whatever it ends up being. You know, that is something that you can't even recognize because the only thing, the only way you can recognize it is basically these guys' ERAs and how awful they are um, because that's really where you measure, like, like, you know, you don't know what can happen um, mentally if it's still a 3-2 to two ball game uh, on the offensive side. So... There's just that level that you can't even measure how bad this bullpen necessarily was. Uh, And that is where why the whole blown save thing is kind of a flawed thing to look at, why you see that there are some teams, even though it's kind of an aberration, who made the playoffs with more blown saves than the Mets. You're listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. Our guest this evening is Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing dot com. So, Rich, that was a lot of information I put out there. Just jump right in. Well, you know, Mike, when you give the percentages, what I hear is that the Mets weren't statistically far off, you know, from the playoff teams or baseball in general. The save percentage was close. Uh, the blown saves were close. Basically, most teams, your statistics point to, most teams, even playoff teams, struggle with their bullpens. So, you know, and when I look at the Mets, you know, when you look at Diaz, he had a bad year, right? But but I am so against trading him, and, and I go out of my mind, people say, get rid of him, trade him, all these kinds of things, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you'd be selling for pennies on the dollar. Uh, he has very little value on the open market now, so why would you trade him now? But then I'll point to some other stats here. Diaz, and this this blows my mind. For a guy with a 5.59 ERA to have pitched 58 innings and have 99 strikeouts, Diaz is striking out almost two guys an inning, okay? Now, the stuff, and I hate to sound like Mickey Calloway, but the stuff is there. He's striking out major league hitters at an incredible rate. The guy is just making mistakes. And I think this has been spoken about before. I don't have actual numbers, but... When he makes a mistake, it's getting pounded. It's getting hit over the wall, which defies logic. Logic would tell you that, you know what, three, four, five times out of ten, at the most, when he makes a mistake, it would be hit hard and potentially hit over the wall. This guy, it seems like every time he hangs a slider, it's hit over the fence. So there's some statistical fluky stuff going on here. Um, But, again, when you look at his numbers, if you're striking out two major league hitters a game, you have good stuff and you can get the job done. So you keep this guy around and you work with him. You figure it out. If he's not finishing the slider or whatever the, the reason might be, whatever the analysis would show, work with this guy to make him what he was in Seattle. The stuff is still there. You asked about you know other contributors to the bullpen demise. You're right. It's not – we like to yell at Edwin Diaz because he's an easy target. You know He was the face of a lot of the blown saves 
in the middle of the season. I think back to the Philadelphia game, the Thursday afternoon game in the four-game series, where they miraculously took a two-run lead in the top of the ninth, and Diaz, you know, within five seconds, three runs in, game over. So he's the face of it. But there's a lot of blame to go around. You know, you look at some of these numbers, um, even Seth Lugo, you know, six saves, like you said, he blew, he blew several like that, that afternoon game in Chicago, that Sunday afternoon game. So Lugo contributed. Gesellman contributed. Familia was an unmitigated disaster for the most part. <laughs> Justin Wilkins couldn't stay on the field. Like you always say, Mike, the best ability is durability. Uh, Justin Wilson just couldn't stay on the field long enough to make a meaningful contribution. So there's a lot of blame to go around in the bullpen. It's unfortunate that Edwin Diaz, um, I have to disagree with Greg here. I do kind of feel sorry for him. It's unfortunate that he's the face of it, uh, but that's human nature. You know, we tend to scapegoat. But if you really look at the numbers, it, it, it probably is a bit of scapegoating. You know, his numbers are, aren't good, but they aren't so far off the reservation that, that people, you know, that to be congruent with the reaction he gets. So that, that's the first thing. And to answer your question about about the um, the idea of the May and June, I, I, I think there's no explanation. We, we, in this day and age of analytics, we try to analyze everything, put a number to everything, and that's fine. How can you put a number to that? You look at what could possibly have caused it. Were there, were there significant injuries in those months? Well, not really, especially this year. You know, the Mets, their starting pitchers started 154 of their 162 games. So there, were, there wasn't a significant starting pitcher injury. When I say they're starting pitchers, they're, they're traditional five. Um, there wasn't a significant injury that would have contributed to that that happened in those months. It's just one of those things. You know, and it happens year after year, and, and I don't know that you can explain it. Um, the other thing is, you remember a few years ago when the Mets couldn't win at home, and they, they, especially the Nationals, the Nationals were just eating their lunch at City Field, and the Mets – Right, the Mets were having horrible home seasons, and remember Terry Collins at one point said, "Well, we can't explain it, so we're going to start doing things differently." He actually said, "We're going to serve the pregame meals at a different time. We're going to do things that replicate being on the road while we're here at home. So, you know, we're going to take batting practice at a different time. We're going to stretch at a different time. We're going to do things that replicate the road experience to try to, you know, get these guys out of it." Now. Do I think any of that made sense? No. But sometimes these weird things happen, and we can't explain them. And that's what I point to here um, in terms of the May and June thing. Uh, but one thing I will say, if you watch the post game on September 29th after the last game of the season, every player, Conforto, Alonzo, McNeil, everybody they talked to at one point or another said, Next year, we have to play six good months of baseball, not three, not two. We have to play six good months of baseball. They recognize it. Maybe they, maybe they, like I, don't have a reason for it, but they recognize that you can't mail in two months of the baseball season and expect to compete. You just can't do it. Um, and they're, now it's three to nothing. Dodgers are hitting home runs all over the place. All right, that, yeah, that's my is. rant on Yeah, I mean, the dog days are the dog days of spring, uh, I, I have a saying that, you know, once is an event, twice is a coincidence, three times is a trend. Uh, this this is something else. So I will throw two more topics out there before we get to our final word. Uh, I don't believe we've spoken since Pete Alonso hit number 53, and I don't believe we ever addressed Jerry Kuzman's 
number 36 being retired by the New York Mets. That's it. Greg, I will start with you. Those are, uh, those are two good numbers now, uh, 53 and 36. Uh, 36 always was, but uh, now it's been elevated. Um, no, I was surprised when 36 was announced as retired for Jerry Kuzman. And I think the reason I was surprised uh, foremost is that Jerry Kuzman's Met career is sort of at a level that we haven't had too many. Uh, We haven't had a really good, long Met career that maybe wasn't, you know, immortal. We've had a couple of those, fortunately. And we've had some that were spectacular and kind of ended too soon or started too late. And we haven't really had too many in the, shall we say, upper, upper middle class or beyond beyond that, I suppose. Uh, But, you know, knocking on the door of greatness, uh, as Kuzman's was at its best, and it was at its best a lot. I think the other thing about Kuzman as opposed to Seaver and as opposed to Piazza, is that he wasn't too often, you know, the signature player on his teams. Uh, really, only after Seaver was traded was he kind of acknowledged as the ace of the Mets, and that, you know, ended relatively soon after Seaver was gone because Kuzman only lasted another year and a half as a Met. And by the time Kuzman came up and won 19 games as a rookie, Seaver was already established as the franchise in so many words. But, you know, you you don't have uh, a world championship in 1969 without Jerry Kuzman. You don't have it without lots of guys. I mean, that was the, the ultimate team effort. But Jerry Kuzman, you know, is the reason the Mets got back in that World Series and to a great degree is the reason they won that World Series in Game 5. guy who can make a mistake in the first inning and then say, all right, that's it, and, you know, go out and pitch, uh, you know, I think it was the first inning he gave up the three runs, I could be mistaken, but you know, seven, eight, whatever it was, he completed the game, uh, which you would not see today. Uh, so I, I think the other thing, that strikes me as this is appropriate is quite frankly, nobody else has made use of number 36. (laughs) We probably, I don't remember if I was on on the the show when you've done episode 36 or 136 or 3036 as we tend to do the numbers. But, um, you know, we always, uh, you know, this is one of those numbers where we would say, well, there's Jerry Kuzman and everybody else. And I don't think, you know, you're not retiring a number just because nobody else has worn it well, but it is so established as Jerry Kuzman's and with good reason. And we've seen everybody from Wayne Twitchell to to Mickey Calloway wear it since then with almost a, no pun intended, uniform uh, lack of distinction. I think only really Ed Lynch and maybe Greg McMichael, if you want to be charitable, uh, had any kind of sustained success in it, and that was just you know for a few minutes basically. So it's a, it's nice to know that the Mets are doing this sort of thing now. Um, you know, I, I I think in a way, in my heart of hearts, that once anybody's number was added to 41, it kind of seemed 
well, there's only 141, so maybe retiring numbers, you know, if, you, if you're never going to retire another number, just leave it at 41. But then 31 came along, and you, and you could not argue with that because Piazza so defined his era and did so many amazing things for this franchise. And Kuzman is just at that next level. But then there's this question, is that next level a retired number level? And I think when you, when you look at how long he was here and what he did, what an impact he had, the, the respect in which he was held by his teammates over a generation, and the fact that you can come back around in 50 years and it still resonates, I think it's a, it's a great step uh, for this organization. I think it's a great acknowledgement of, of that, that, you know, we, we, we've talked so long about a team that does not pay homage to its history, and here it's, it's doing, I think, the right thing. And that's, you know, that's number 36 in my mind. And number 53, uh, you know, gosh, a New York Mets hit 53 home runs in the season. Uh, I would have been satisfied with 42. And that's only once Pete Alonso got going because, quite frankly, on March 28th, if that was uh, when the season began, I believe it was, and you said, you know, how many home runs might Pete Alonso hit, knowing what you know about him, which wasn't all that much, I'd say. I don't know, but I hope, you know, I hope it's a representative number. I hope, you know, if he's in there for, for his home run bat, that he hits a lot of home runs. I never would have dreamed it would be 53 home runs or, you know, 41 home runs matching Hunley and Beltran. And, you know, the, the, the amazing thing to me about 53 since I just invoked Hundley and Beltron, is that that's a 12-home run margin. He just cremated. <laughs> he crushed the, the former uh, record. And just to put that in perspective, you know, you know that Frank Thomas, the original Frank Thomas, had 34 home runs for the 1962 Mets, and it remained the record until Dave Kingman came along at 75. But what really gets me about that Thomas number is that until, I think it was late August, of 1969, when Tommy Agee hit his 22nd home run of what would be a 26-home run year in 69, nobody had come within 12 home runs of that record. <laughs> and, you know, as the years would go by, you know, like, you know, Kingman came along and Strawberry and Hundley and Beltran, Hojo was in there, Delgado was in there, all in Piazza, all in that same range, high 30s, low 40s. Pete Alonso is 12 home runs beyond anybody else in Mets history. I know I've already said that like three times, but it's incredible. <laughs> and even in a year when home runs were not as hard to come by as in other years, I didn't see anybody else at 53 home runs. <laughs> not on the Mets, not not on any team. A couple of guys, I guess Henio Suarez came closest with 49. And uh, Soler, I believe, had 48 for the Royals. And, you know, there's some guys in the 40s. But 53 home runs, guys. Come on. A Met with 53 home runs and anything above 41, you know, is breathtaking where this franchise is concerned. And as it got down to the final weekend, and we're, we're talking about, you know, catching and passing Aaron Judge, which, of course, is a great bonus because of who Aaron Judge plays for. Uh, that's really nice. But, um I was thinking, you know what number I would really love? I'd love 54 because 54 was as many as Ralph Kiner ever had. 54 says one out of every three games. 54 would have placed Pete's total at exactly the pace he was on before the home run derby. 
and you know there there was just this sort of um, reaction upon, uh, by a lot of Mets fans to kind of fear the home run derby and to assume afterwards that it wouldn't beat Alonzo's swing because he did have a couple of rough weeks after the All Star game, and yet he was he had he had 90 home run excuse me 30 home runs after 90 games, and I wanted him to have 54 after 162, and I'm sitting here like as if 53 wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, fifty three is fine. Fifty three is splendid. It's amazing that this is now the number we will look up to. That unless I suppose it's possible that that Pete could top himself, and that would be great. I, I wouldn't necessarily go expecting it or asking for it because that that seems like a lot of nerve on our part. But um, you know, the the way that you know that for, for the first thirteen years of the franchise, we looked at thirty four in terms of home runs as the Met standard, the way we've looked at 41 since 1996 as the Met standard, the way we look at certain numbers in Mets history, like 354 for a batting average, 25 for total wins by a pitcher in a single season, and the way we've looked at 108 for total wins by a team. We will now look at 53, and we can we can bring that to the party, and we can hold our head up high. We're not, we're not the team with 41 home runs anymore try, trying to get into the conversation where where the Giants and their 73 run 73 home run uh, creature from, from the laboratory is and the 70 home run guy from the Cardinals and the, the 66 home run guy from the Cubs and the 61 home run guy from the Yankees and your various 58s and 57s up, up and down the major leagues. You know, we're in that conversation now. We have a 53 home run hitter. And he's a hell of a hitter. He's a hell of a player. He's a hell of a guy. Um, I, I would recommend uh, if anybody is is feeling met withdrawal, and I can't imagine anybody listening to a podcast about the Mets isn't feeling met withdrawal. Uh, go to YouTube. Go to the Mets page. Find the uh, the one on one, as it's called, interview that Howie Rose did with Pete Alonso, where he he sits with him for twenty minutes. You watch those twenty minutes, and you'll be thinking. Can we sign Pete Alonso to a 20-year extension right now? Because he's he's that kind of person. And again, you know, you're not going to do that, and you're better off not doing that. But you know, the, this is just, you know, just I, I can't get past the idea that Pete Alonso came along literally two games after, you know, with a winter in between. Two games after David Wright plays his last game, Pete Alonzo walks in the door, essentially, and plays on opening day of the following season after David Wright said, you know, an emotional goodbye on the second-to-last day of the season before. And I don't know that there was necessarily a void because David Wright had not, you know, been on the scene really for the previous two and a half years except at the very end, but we know how much David Wright meant to the franchise, meant to the fans, just meant to the organization. And you turn around and you have somebody of that ilk. I'm not going to say he's David Wright. That's not fair to anybody. But he's Pete Alonzo. And, you know, when, when uh, we might have been talking in the off season about, well, will this guy be on the roster and that sort of thing, we had no idea what that meant really. And now we do. And it's it's an amazing thing, and the 53 home runs is an amazing thing, and I still can't believe that a Met has hit 53 home runs. I mean, I've been used to it 
ever since he, you know, it really, once he got to 50, it was like, oh, my God. But really, once he got to 42 and once he was on that pace and did all the, all the things. Um, so, you know, those are, those are now two great numbers with, with more resonance than they ever had before in Mets history, 36, which was always there from, uh, you know, 1967 through 1978 and kind of in mothballs in a way. Uh, it's kind of appropriate. The last man to wear it, who to give it up was uh, Mickey Calloway um, <laughs> to say, I'm not worthy. <laughs> and he wasn't. <laughs> but, uh, so, yes, to have, have Coos uh, elevated the Seaver and Piazza territory is beautiful. And to have Pete Alonso carve out his own territory uh, is amazing. And the best part, all due respect to number 36, is number 53, it's only the beginning. Uh, we don't know what the rest of his career is, but we know that there's going to be a rest of his career, Knockwood, and he's a Met for the foreseeable future, however long we can foresee that for. And, um, you know, just, just to bring it back around to the beginning of the show, you know, wh- wh- why a person should feel good about a team that didn't make the playoffs, well, because it has Pete Alonzo on it. There you go. Uh, I, I want to say all hell. Frank Howard, he deserved it. Uh, Rich, I, this is the third time I'm saying this. In 1920, Babe Ruth opened the doors to the 50 Home Run Club. In 2019, Pete Alonzo became its 30th member. 53 and 36, Rich. Well, 53, you know, I consider myself fortunate. A personal highlight of the season was I was at the game when uh, when Pete hit number 42, and also number 53, both very important uh, numbers. And so I think it's great. You know, I I think with Pete Alonso, the Mets have a homegrown, genuine slugger. And the Mets have their version of Mike Judge. You know, uh, Mike Judge, I'm sorry, of Aaron Judge. Mike Judge uh, did a TV show. So the the Mets have their version of Aaron Judge. The Mets have a homegrown player that the, the fans clearly are drawn to. And as Greg said, it's not only about 53 home runs. The personality he has, the, the 9-11 stuff, the way he stepped up and took a leadership role in the clubhouse at such a young age, all of that, the Mets, you know, we as Mets fans have a treasure on our hands. And um, there's every reason to believe with his work ethic and all of that, that he will continue his trajectory, be around for years to come. Hopefully this is not a one and done. And, you know, he's just someone who, again, as Greg said, not putting the pressure on him that he has taken over for David Wright. But right just after Wright announced his retirement, along comes a new homegrown guy. It's almost it's almost like cosmic. You know, another homegrown guy who, who can handle the media, who can do those post-game press conferences, always there for questions, um, has a community, or, you know, civic orientation. So all those things. So with Pete Alonso, I think it goes well beyond 53 home runs, although that's great. It, it's something about the future and also the fact that the guy is just uh, just a, a good man and can clearly be a fan favorite for years to come. With regard to 36, I have a lot to say about that, and I'll try to be very brief. Um, Jerry Kuzman's numbers, you know, on the surface, you know, 140 and 137 as a Met. Three games over 500, right? Um and then you look at some of his other numbers. His innings pitched were 25-44, strikeouts 17.99, so you know about two thirds of a strikeout an inning. 
Um, what I'm saying is his Met numbers are very good. He, of course, he was on the mound, you know, uh, game five of the 69 World Series. We all know that. Uh, Twelve years of loyal service. Many people said if it was a big game, I wanted Jerry Kuzman on the mound. Although, again, his numbers are a bit on the pedestrian side. But 12 years on the 69 team, on the 73 team, won 20 games next year, lost 20. We all know that. That's a Kuzman uh, idiosyncrasy. Um, I, I have no problem retiring his number. I, I would not jump up and down screaming if they did not. Uh, but I have no, also no problem with the fact that his number was retired. However, I have an enormous problem with the way it was done. You guys haven't mentioned this, and, and maybe this is going to be my rant, but it was deplorable to take the number off of Mickey Calloway's back with one week left to go in the season. It was pointless. It was embarrassing. Okay, you don't do that to the guy. You do not do that to the man. It is horrible. And it, there, there, there wasn't Jerry Kuzman night on that Wednesday where, here, Jerry, you're going up in the rafters. There was no point in doing that. It was just terrible. And and I was embarrassed as a Mets fan. I was embarrassed for this organization the way they handled that, literally ripping the number off the man's back with six games to go. It was, this, in my opinion. They should hang their heads in shame over that, the way that was handled. If you're not going to do a Jerry Kuzman night for the rest of the season, then do it in the off season. It, it was it, you embarrassed Mickey Calloway, and he could put a smile on his face, and the organization could spin it any way they want. They embarrassed him, and it was deplorable. Rant over. Rich, you are so right, Sam. Jump right in. I mean, that. I never even kind of thought about that angle. It's weird, you know, interesting enough, it gave Mickey Calloway a chance to talk about Jerry Kuzman, uh, especially him as a pitcher, but it was kind of pointless. <laughs> and it did come kind of come out of nowhere. And especially if there is a possibility you're leaning that direction, which you kind of have to assume that, they were in terms of firing him, then you have to wonder what was the point other than just being this weird, like, trademark asshole conniving type, you know, something something that's just a weasel. Just a weasel. Kind of like, uh, what, what what's that? I forget the character's name, but the bad guy in Billy Madison. He's kind of he's kind of like Jeff Jeff Wilfon. <laughs> and and listen, I've never met Jeff Wilfon. I mean everybody who has kind of they've never come out and say the word, but they kind of describe him as a weasel. <laughs> and, and that's just that's just it. And this screams that in many ways, where just this one extra thing that I can do to, you know, and, and, and you, you make your presence known as a weasel, but nobody has a good feeling around you. Um, so maybe this is just another one of those Jeff Wilpon weaselly moments. Um, I, I mean, <sighs> all right. Considering that, that this was supposed to, you know, we, we, we we're, we're, <laughs> Rich opened, you know, the Wilton can, if you will. 
So I will try to go, first of all, since we're talking about Kuzman right away, I was going to bring up uh, uh, Alonzo first, but I'm going to go with Kuzman. Um, you know, I think those numbers that he talked about being three games over 500 kind of, uh, of, of say, you know, you know, knowing what I know about those 20 games lost, like it kind of like it's one of those par for course. So it kind of defeated the purpose. He wouldn't, he'd be like 23 games over had he had a better year that year. And he wasn't even that bad in terms of actually pitching. It's just one of those win stats, uh, kind of like Anthony Young. So I think with that, it, it, you know, if you're uh, uh, a Mets fan who remembers those years or you know enough about the history, you kind of know uh, that those 20 losses were just part of, of the narrative of, of that season. Um, so I think that it's great that they decided to, to go this direction. Um, I wish they had been a little bit leaner with these numbers, considering this is one of the things to come out of the Kuzman announcement is the fact that there's going to be room for more. Um, I do think that, that you don't have to be the Yankees or the anti-Yankees that they were seen to be trying to be of being so exclusive um, you know, the Yankees are trying to say that we, we've had this many good players. That's kind of what the point of, of retiring so many are. The Mets don't have to think about it like, like this exclusive club. They can retire the clear-cut, memorable moments of these 57 now, next season, 58 years. And... Um, and now I was thinking about it, how they've been relevant every decade they've ever existed. Not every team can say that. You know, the, the Seattle Mariners basically talk about 1995 as their coming out party. Um, the, the Toronto Blue Jays took till the 90s to be quote-unquote relevant. The, and I have to take a look at what the score is, but the Montreal Expos slash Washington Nationals don't seem to get past the division series, uh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's just it, Montreal Expos took about uh, 12 years to make a championship series, which they, you know, uh, and I say that literally, they, they haven't moved past the championship series uh, only because there was no division series to not move past. But now I'm really throwing shade at the Nationals. That's <laughs> I keep going deeper. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, um, I've kind of lost my trajectory as to where I was going with that. But, but I think I just want to keep throwing shade at the Nationals and the Dodgers better hold me up on that. Because no anybody problem. listening to the archive of any, anybody listening to the archive of this and the Dodgers don't pull this off, I'm just going to sound like such a moron. But um, you know, you you have to you have to just remember that like we've been lucky that we have stories to tell from every single decade of the Mets' existence, and Jerry Kuzman was a major part of those first two decades. So uh, that's that's my segue out of that. Uh, Pete Alonso, fifty-three. You know, it kind of makes me think about <clears throat> Mad Dog and how angry he was about us celebrating Pete Alonso because. The home run, the home runs were so glorious. Now, mind you, he's a Giants fan, and we're talking about '73. 
uh, you know, with Barry Bonds, you know, maybe he's sour because everybody's always calling his record a tainted record. But I, I think that one thing that anybody, and this is where he makes headlines, uh, you know, and, and, and he makes radio gold for sure. Um, but sometimes you wonder whether it, it helps these guys to be so uninformed <laughs> because they make such good radio. I mean, Mike Francesa is so uninformed that so many people want to listen. But everybody's, everybody with, with some of these guys are, are, are tweeting it and re, re, you know, just circulating it uh, because of how terrible their takes are because they sound like they don't even watch sports sometimes. But mind you, I, I you know to to Russo's credit, he's not a Mets fan. He's an overall baseball fan, and so obviously you're not going to see every single one of the 53 Pete Alonso home runs as somebody who's only reporting on overall baseball as well as your specific team being Giants. Um, I think the point being missed. Because I think with a lot of these balls, you can clearly see something is up. Like these tee shots that just get out are, are pretty astonishing if you're a baseball fan because you're not used to that little effort of swing and the ball going out the way it did. The difference between those um, and Pete Alonzo's balls, which might have been aided by that, if, if it just got out of City Field, it was because it got there in two seconds. If it got into the part that wasn't original City Field, Great Wall of Flushing area, it was because Pete Alonso drove it out of there so fast that we couldn't even believe it cleared the wall so quickly. That, those, and and, and, and any, anything that's not constituted as just having cleared, cleared by a mile. That is the kind of, uh, of home runs we were witness to with Pete Alonso. That is what we, we just watched this season. And so say what you want. The timing of it may have, like, it might just be this perfect storm that made this mess record where the balls and Pete Alonso came together. But there is nothing that can really seriously take away from what that man has just done. And I believe, and obviously we're going to find out a little bit more about the balls. I think clearly major league baseball knows it's an issue and there might be something said that we'll have to talk about over uh, this off season. But um, I think Pete Alonzo could hit 62 home runs, challenge 60 home runs. Um, and that the best is yet to come with this kid. So 53 is the number now. Let's see him hit 55 next season. And let's, let's see an interesting conversation when he had 62 home runs. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be something. I'm, I'm calling it right now. I can be very Jekyll and Hyde uh, as both a baseball fan and a Met fan. Uh, with regards to Pete Alonso and number 53, first and foremost, uh, you know, he 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 re-injected a lot of kid sensibilities into me watching the season, watching his season. And, and what do I mean by that? It, it just makes me, for 
you know, for moments throughout the season makes me forget about everything that we know about the Mets and how they run and whatnot. And for many, many games, you know, uh, I just sat back and, and just enjoyed my guys in, in, in our white and white uniforms and blue pinstripes with our. Hey, can I, can I just say? Flow. Can I just say, Mike? That I think I think the last uh, game of the year and the, your reaction to Dominic Smith and, that was and a relief. it's just reminding me it's reminding me of a tweet that that was said with a conversation I think big big Red Ruckus that we should uh, give a shout out to because he's always giving a shout out to us on Twitter um, you know mentioned and I I said back like like the love of the Mets and how we can kind of forget about all this these little layers of it was just encompassed in that that one point. That that was a release. It really was, and uh, I'm I'm realizing that now. And uh, you know what, Pete Alonso is responsible for a lot of that uh, because I, I I can be very jaded at times. You know, delving into all their issues, especially financially. You know, sometimes I I, I beat myself for you know delving too much and finding out too much, and it just really pisses me off. And you know, here this guy came along, as Greg said so well, that he's our guy. Our guy did this, and. You know, that's prestige, man. Our guy hit 50. Where, You know, he's a rookie. Where are the other 50 home run hitters this season? If the ball's so juiced, which we all agree it is, I'm not disputing it, just playing contrarian here. But, you know, he's a rookie. Where where this season's other 50 home run hitters? Point them out. I'll wait. Thank you. I thought so. So, you know, I'm not going to poo-poo his season, his accomplishment with – very viable, uh, you know, subject matter, so to say. And with regards to Jerry Kuzman, real quick, uh, Rich, you, you, man, you're so right. And I feel exactly as you do. Uh, and for as much as they're going to continue blowing this and getting it just wrong, even though they're going to give us what we want, but they're going to go about it, you know, just so wrongly, uh, the fact that they're getting it done, retiring Jerry Kuzman. I'm, I'm just so ecstatic that I'm, I'm willing to overlook, again, all those little details that we know about how they do things and, and how, you know, how absent-minded they are when it comes to this team's history. Uh, so I'm just very – Jerry Kuzman, you know, uh, Jerry Kuzman had to be damned. The man was a hero, uh, and I mean that in baseball terms. The real heroes are overseas in harm's way. But, you know, when we speak of baseball and growing up and, and, and growing our, our passions for this game, you know, Jerry Kuzman was a hero to me. And I, I treat very few people like that. If anything, more people have disappointed me in my life than actually, uh, you know, stayed true and stayed on course like Jerry Kuzman did. Uh, you know, Greg has brought up football numerous times this evening. I'm going to bring up basketball. One of the first persons to ever break my heart as a fan and as a child was Sugar Ray, Michael Ray Richardson. Uh, outside of the Mets and, and, and Donald Grant and how he ran the team. Uh, but that, you know, and his drug usage, and you know, uh, I really clung on to him, and, and that whole episode broke my heart. But Jerry Kuzman is somebody who stayed the course and and 
there's just not a bad memory about him. If anything, the Mets, you know, uh, they they made him lose 35 games over two seasons. I blame that solely on the Mets. Uh, he was one of the last to go. Uh, the other players got released earlier than Kuzman. Uh, and, you know, Ed Prinkle retired in 79. I guess here's my rant. Uh, Gary Kuzman is, is nothing short of a hero in, in Met annals. And that's why I say stats be damned. There is no championship in 69 without him. There is no pennant in 73 without him. Uh, you, you know, he's a titan in Mets history. And for that reason and that reason alone, he, has, he deserves to have his number retired. It's not about the Hall of Fame and stats and this, that, and the other. We're Mets fans. And this guy was a hero to anybody who watched him pitch. Uh, that's my rant. <laughs> so with that, uh, I, I will pass it around to you guys. If there's anything we left out that you want to touch before we get to our final word, Rich, I will ask you. No, I think we hit the highlights. I think, you know, the manager thing, I'm glad you brought up the uh, Jerry Kuzman thing because I had to get that Mickey Calloway thing off my chest. You know, we talked about that. Um, I think with given where we are right now, you know, 10 days after the end of the season, I think we've hit the highlights. So great job, Mike. Greg, thank you for being on with us again this evening. We appreciate your time each and every time. Uh, oh, you just offer sure. such fascinating insight each and every uh, moment you're with us. So uh, anything that we missed, anything that you'd like to bring up before we get to our final word? Uh, in terms of the contemporary, I, th- I think we're good. I'm I'm going to give them a little bit of a pass on the ripping the 36 off Mickey Calloway's back. I mean, it kind of occurred to me after the fact that uh, it, it had taken place and, the, and they, they must have known that he was on his way out. But I don't know. I guess the way that, that Calloway himself handled it struck me as so sportsmanlike, and, and maybe you're right. Maybe they could have said, you know, we we, we can wait on this. Uh, we can put out a press release or something in the off season or have an event and, and announce it and celebrate it. And I, I like the fact that they were doing it on the 50th anniversary of the first division clinching. Seemed, seemed to give it a little bit of historical oomph. And I, I suppose if, if 36 was Mickey Calloway's number for years and years, and he was super identified with it. It would have seemed really gauche. But, I mean, I think I don't remember why Callaway chose 36 uh, to begin with. Like, his kids were three and six or something like that. I, I could be completely wrong. I don't remember the answer. And, but I, I don't remember it being it, – it's not such a trademark Mickey Callaway thing where, you know, if, if you suddenly decided in 1989, let's say – that the you were the Mets are going to retire Yogi Berra's number eight, and they told Gary Carter in September, you know what we we need eight from you, big guy, <laughs> because yeah. we want to take care of Yogi Berra. That would have been incredibly obnoxious to me. Um, something about the way Callaway handed it over, you know, they had it sitting on the uh, the counter in front of him, the counter, then the table at the press conference. Um, I don't know. It, it it had it had a nice feel to it. Uh, I I think you know he was just. I think Callaway was just renting 36, and the Kuzman lived in it for so long. But I, I can see your point. I can see where you'd say, you know what, it's occupied. Come back. Come back in 10 days, and we'll, we'll do this then. So um, I, 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 I see your point. 
but I don't I don't think it was. I just the fact that the Mets would would do it to begin with. I, I guess I'm I'm floored that uh, you know one day I I looked down at my phone and saw the Mets retired number 36 for Jerry Kuzum and I said you know what what wonderland have I woken up in where the Mets like actually stop to do something like this. So I was I was pretty cool with with the way they did it. Um, but otherwise, you know, we, we've covered uh, 2019, how it ended. So uh, thank you. Sam, if you have any outstanding subject matter you'd like to address, uh, otherwise you can go right into your final word. I, I guess just if I wasn't going into my final word, uh, you know, talking about that last game, <clears throat> excuse me, I think Dominic Smith was the perfect person to segue us into the off season with 86 wins. Um, he, he seemed to represent what us Met fans kind of want out of a player in many ways um, that we want somebody who's not going to be, you know, boohooed about how many, how he has to give up playing time to somebody who's about to hit 53 home runs. And he's just going to do what he needs to do to help the team win. And Dominic Smith was out for too long, and luckily we played well during that period. But uh, he got another chance, and he was able to give us a swing for the ages. In a 2019, that that would be our last baseball memory. And <clears throat> he, it, it, you know, he is he is immortalized in a gif, which is a, a lovely new way to be immortalized in this day and age, where he's chanting, "Let's go next." Um, and, and that, that's it. He was a fan like us when he wasn't on the field helping the team win. He was helping the team win the only way that we can help the team win. And, and, you know, in in a, in a a plus, uh, you know, way in in some fashion, because we can't actually be buddy, buddy with the, uh, the rest of the, the people down there. So, uh, yeah, uh, without, Specifically, I guess the last word is perseverance because that's what Dominic Smith did to get to that last game of the year, and that's what the 2019 Mets did. Uh, Mr. Greg, thank you again for coming on with us this evening. Uh, thank, th- I would thank you ask, for having us. I would ask you to take a moment, give us some shameless plugs, as we love to do here, and uh, offer us your final word. Well, the shameless plug, as always, is faithandfearinflushing.com. Uh, we, we are not shuttered down for the winter by any means. Just wrote a little something about uh, the NLDS and ALDS this afternoon, and uh, we'll continue to cover the postseason. Uh, search my name on Amazon. Uh, enjoy some, uh, some Mets books while you're at it. Um, two, if I, may, if I may take two words. Uh, one is... Youth, uh, something I used to have. Um, I just want to want to quickly call the roll uh, for 2019. Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, Ahmed Rosario, J.D. Davis, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, and yes, last but not least, Dom Smith. They were all relatively young. Well, certainly rel- relative to people like me. Uh, they're totally young. But uh, I think McNeil is the oldest of 27, uh, turned that during the season, I believe. 
Conforto has the goes back the furthest, uh, brought up uh, in 2015, Nimmo in 2016, and the rest came later. Davis obviously came in a trade, but the rest were uh, homegrown. Um, I can't think of a more promising and even productive young core maybe you know, defining this team on an everyday basis, leaving aside the pitching for the moment. Uh, you know, may, maybe you have to go back to 1969 when, you know, when, you know the core was, was Cleon Jones and Ed Cranepool and Ron Swoboda and Bud Harrelson and Jerry Grody, guys like those who were kind of the young veterans, uh, you know, certainly with a, a sprinkling of experience from the Clendenins and the Charleses and the Shamskys who came from elsewhere. 86, you had a, a, a lot of very good young homegrown players, but, you know, you had Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez, kind of two of the tent poles there. And we've had other really good young homegrown players, but usually anecdotal almost, whether it was Alfonso on those teams or Wright and Reyes on their team, or even, you know, the, the later incarnation of Wright's teams that, that, uh, that went somewhere with Murphy and Duda. This, this is a scary bunch, potentially. We didn't see everybody perform to their best all year. It was kind of an off year for Nimmo. He was injured, uh, but he had a moment or two. And Rosario had his troubles in the first half. He had moments. Davis and Conforto had back page moments. McNeil and Alonzo were you know, all-stars on merit, and they kept being all-stars long after the all-star game was history. And Dom Smith, you know, we are still telling from. Uh, his his greatest moment, and he had a lot of good ones. So this is, you know, the, this is kind of the bow ideal. I think I used that phrase earlier, but I'm going to use it again, of, of what a Met team can be and really what a baseball team can be, that, that you put together a team of young players who are your own and you watch them grow and get better as uh, Cody Bellinger has just made a hell of a catch in center field, by the way, um, keeping the Nationals off the board, which I don't think any of us mind. But anyway, um, so you, you have a team like this, and you're, you're going to need other players on it. You had other players on it this year, which is to say, you know, it would be nice to have included Tomas Nito uh, in, in this roll call. But, you know, obviously Wilson Ramos is your catcher from somewhere else. Todd Frazier hit some big home runs. Robinson Cano, who we are stuck with, whether we want to be or not, had had some big hits. So, um, and you know, some 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 other guys on the team as well. Guys like Juan Lagares, who who we might not see again. I'm not sure what his status is going to be as a free agent. But but the bulk of this team, those seven guys, maybe you know one of them is is going to not be here next year because of the way rosters evolve and then trades are made and so forth. But it's it's very exciting. And uh, when I was about to use the, the phrase uh, "bow ideal," uh, when when Cody Bellinger uh, so rudely interrupted me, um, I think back to Casey Stengel <laughs> and uh, talking up the talking up the youth of America, circa 1965, when it was Cranepool and Swoboda and Harrelson and others who who didn't really make it that far, and 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 selling the promise that these terrible Mets were going to get good, and I think about. You know, in in the aftermath of clinching the division in 1969, that that we acknowledged, you know, the the anniversary just passed, and Jerry Cousin's number was retired that day. Um, when Bob Murphy was signing off that night, 
he talked about, you know, well, how great this was for the organization and giving hosannas all around. It says, and the scouts, he said. And, and when I first heard him say that, when I listened to that broadcast, you know, many years after the fact, I thought he was just being, you know, nice <laughs> to, to guys who, who worked for the Mets. But really what he meant was the Mets went out and signed a lot of young players back, you know, just as the free agent draft, the amateur draft was coming into effect. So some of those guys predated that. Guys like Jerry Kuzman, uh, they, they beat the bushes. They found these guys. They, they nurtured them. And, you know, they, they grew up together very fast. And this is the sort of thing that you, you want. Now, now, what you want is for a 1969 to be the, you know, the end conclusion of that or, or years where you get to October and, and this is – this is real meaningful as opposed to just saying, hey, hey, guys, nice year. Um, and if we are on the way there, it's going to be because we have this, this group of players. Whoever brought them here, some of it was Alderson, some of it is Van Wagenen, uh, some of it is, is the wisdom in not trading certain guys maybe. Um, somewhere along the way, like I said, some, somebody is going to be traded probably and maybe – it becomes somebody who who pushes us to the next level, and it's not a homegrown guy. But it's it's it's. You know, I heard the phrase "the best is yet to come" uh, was said earlier. You know, the best is met to come. Uh, I, I, I want to use I want to steal that and use it as a headline uh, on on the blog uh, very soon. Um, and there's no uh, I don't really have a fancy segue for this, but the other name I don't think it's come up tonight. Maybe it did very briefly. Jacob Degrom is going to win the Cy Young probably. Uh, I don't want to yeah. jinx it. Jacob DeGrom had a great year, not maybe not quite the great year he had in 2018, but he, he persevered through a couple of uh, bad starts. Uh, really, the only thing the Minnesota Twins were good for was, ruining, as it turned out, other than winning 101 games, uh, was, 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 was ruining his quality start streak, which lasted about a year. Um, and it's almost, you know, because we had, you know, a, a 53 home run guy and an exciting walk-off home run on the last swing of the year from Dom Smith, which I will agree with you guys. I, I saw two of you after the game was over, and I, I was still on a high, and I'm still on a high from it. I've been to 276 regular season games in City Field, and that is my favorite by far. I don't even have a second favorite, I don't think, to go back and look. But right. um, the point being that you know, we, we celebrate all of these names I mentioned, and I think you know they kind of define the year. Jacob DeGrom has given us two consecutive, you know, again, I won't speak for the baseball writers, but one Cy Young Award and certainly very much in the conversation for a second consecutive Cy Young, uh, a guy who has been, quite frankly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to wind up doing a whole thing on this on the blog, so I, I shouldn't uh, try to, I shouldn't spoil it, but Let's just say that when, when it comes to saying who who be met of the decade is, I don't think you guys have to guess <laughs> where number forty-eight fits in. And you know he's what well, while this team was was trying to to hang in there, we didn't even. It's funny that we could talk about the Mets for two hours as as we tend to do, and don't not even talk about the starting pitching uh, that was very good uh, in, in in the case of Wheeler. And in the case of Matt, uh, as eventually in the case of Stroman, intermittently in the case of Syndergaard. But we don't have to put any qualifier where Jacob deGrom is concerned. And, um, you know, you've, you've seen the emoji perhaps, the goat, uh, you know, from a uh, for, for, from my generation. Uh, you know, goat did not have such a fantastic uh, 
implication to it. It meant that you were not the hero of last night's World Series game when Bill Gallo uh, drew those cartoons the next day. But uh, in the in the parlance of of this decade, greatest of all time. Um, I don't know about greatest of all time, but greatest of his time among Mets, Jacob Degrom, and it's been a privilege to watch him, and I look forward uh, to a few more years at least of Jacob Degrom uh, heading up this rotation. Take it away, Rick. Well, you know, my last word, or uh, I have three words, get it right. Um, The decision on a manager is critical at this point. This is not a team that won 70 games last year that, you know, is miles and miles away, and manager is one piece of of a puzzle that's missing a lot of pieces. You know, I think the Mets are close. I think putting the right person in the manager's office will matter. You don't want to regress. You, you've made good progress. You don't want to regress at this point. So I think they're facing a very, very critical decision. I think they know what they have to do. They know why they let Mickey go, and they have to not make that same mistake. Um, they have to get a good tactician, and they have to get someone who has done this before. I love Carlos Beltran. Would love to have him as a bench coach or a base coach, all of that. Um, manager in training, absolutely. But now is not the time. It's no, no more on-the-job training, guys. You know, Let's get serious here. So my final words are get it right. This is a critical, critical decision that they have to get right, and my perception of getting it right, as I said earlier, would be somebody who's won before and won in a big market and can handle – can handle the New York day-to-day stuff. So um, that's where I am. That's my last word. They've got to get this one right. Uh, I'll make and may I just say, may I? I'm sorry, man. I just wanted to say that that you know everything you're reading about Buck Showalter is that he wears out his welcome. Well, why don't you just come in, win a World Series, and be done with it? <laughs> I'll be more than happy to give him some time over here so he can wear out this welcome as well. Uh, very quickly, jeez, uh, oh, Sam, you knocked me off kilter here. Uh, I will say that I'm willing to overlook a lot, ignore things, close a blind eye to other things, and say uh, I'm a content Mets fan right now at the moment. Uh, they caught me on a good day. And I said earlier uh, that for many reasons, Greg brought up DeGrom and we have Alonzo uh, and for various other reasons, we're going to look back on this season very fondly. And I'd be a hypocrite to say that, you know, I look back on 1976 very fondly. And to look at that season that way and not and this season not similarly, you know, uh, that doesn't quite uh, add up. So, uh uh, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool for many reasons, uh, and I'm willing to ignore other things for another day. So again, they got me on a good day. Uh, all that said, uh, Sam, let's uh, get us out of here the only way you know how. Let's go Mets and Dodgers tonight, for that matter. Let's <laughs> go Mets. Let's Greg, thank you go, again. Mets. Safe and- Fear and Flushing.com. Gentlemen, Rich, Sam, thank you again for a great episode of a Metsian podcast. I wish you all a good night and good night to everyone. Good night, all. Good night. <laughs>